If you would please take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17. I too want to wish all the fathers happy Father's Day. It's a special day for you. It's a wonderful time. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to honor our fathers. Proverbs chapter 17. I just want to read one verse. And that's in verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of old men. And the glory of sons is their fathers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to honor our fathers and celebrate this day. Uh, we pray that you would bless our time together around your word. May There's no better way to honor fathers than to expound your word and to share the word with our fathers so that they can, they can be encouraged, so that they can be uh, built up and lifted up and edified and ready to go out and perform their tasks in a way that would honor and glorify you. Again, as we come to your word, I pray that you would be honored and you would be glorified, that we would apply the things that we learned here today as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a short little verse, but I want to use this verse, this passage, to start uh, a conversation and it's a conversation that we never really thought that we would have to have, but it's a conversation that we need to have. It's an important conversation. It's not just a conversation that we have, but it's something that we need to have in our families, among our, with our children, among couples. It needs to start if it hasn't already started. It's a conversation about manhood. To be specific, biblical manhood. And it's an important conversation, especially in these days, because there's so much confusion out there. There are those who are deliberately maligning and uh, distorting and twisting and contorting in every direction this idea of masculinity and manhood. What is it? And one sermon is not going to do uh, enough. It's not going to do it justice. We need clear teaching on this. And if we don't have clear teaching on manhood, masculinity, we are going to, our, our sons and our daughters are going to grow up and be confused. Especially if they listen to the world's ideas. Because the world is confused on this issue. And they're going adrift even further and further every day it seems like. Now, this is a short little verse um, but it's a good place to start that conversation because this puts masculinity, this verse puts masculinity in the context of the family. The family is God's ordained institution. He established the family and that's where the whole identity of a masculinity and fatherhood or manhood is established among Children, sons and fathers and grandfathers. And that's the context here of this, this little verse. Now, to understand this verse, we need to... There's a few things that we need to, to pick up and we need to understand. It's a proverb. It's a pithy little statement. Now, if you remember, we spent some time developing the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs. 
And Solomon has explained to us how to handle this wisdom, that this wisdom is ultimately from God, from the mind of God, and it reflects his very nature, his very character. And then Solomon spends the next 15 chapters or so giving us this wisdom, laying out these pithy little statements of wisdom for us so that we can then apply these to our life and they become part of who we are. And this proverb is in Scripture, in the context of Scripture. That means that it is from God. This is not just wise sayings of man, but this is wise sayings from God, and they reflect God's values. We need to keep that in mind. Also, another thing is this is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is not so much concerned about rhyming and the the things that we would consider poetry today, but their poetry would be parallelism. They would parallel ideas. And so you would have one idea and another idea, and they may contrast or they may be similarities between the two, and you compare those and you contrast those to come up with the meaning. And it makes you think. That's the point. And that's what you're supposed to do, comparing and contrasting these things and come up with the meaning. And in this passage, in this little verse, he is comparing and contrasting and he is making uh, really similarities between grandchildren and fathers. That's an unlikely comparison. But he says that grandchildren are the crown of old men. The crown of old men. Now, we know what he's talking about there. Just because we, you can see that in real life. You can experience that. Now, the crown here is not a literal crown, but figuratively. It could be talking about wealth, but it's talking about a crown. And, but it's figuratively. And he's saying it's the splendor of old men to have grandchildren. It's just pride and joy, we might call it today. Or, or glory or honor. It's, a, it's an honor that's due him because of these grandchildren. And it brings him great satisfaction, great pleasure and delight. And it's important to him. And this is a a crowning achievement, we might say. And you you ask grandparents, do you have grandkids? And they say, oh, yes. And they can pull out some pictures or pull it up. Now they just pull it up on their phone and Facebook. And you can see all of the pictures of grand. And they're just beaming, beaming. Now, that is to be compared with fathers. Those grandchildren to be compared to fathers. And it says sons, it says uh, the glory of their sons is their fathers. Fathers. Now, now that's kind of unlikely, and that might be a little confusing for us. We need to understand what the the word glory means there and how it's used in Scripture. So I want to develop that a little bit. There's three Different nuances in Scripture for this word and this idea of glory. First of all, is it refers to beauty, maybe uh, finery, we might say. We might use it for uh, to describe ornaments on a Christmas tree. You have a plain Christmas tree; it's just a tree. But when you decorate it, when you put all these ornaments on there, it, it brings glory to that tree. It, it makes it a beautiful thing. And in Ezekiel chapter six, in Ezekiel chapter six, there's a whole list of verses. Verse 17 talks about jewelry there and being a glory there. Another passage that I want us to just be aware of is Exodus chapter 28. 
This is the way it's used in Exodus chapter 28, verse 20, uh, verse 2. It says this, you shall make holy garments. Now, this is God speaking to Moses, and he is saying, you need to make holy garments. And that's not gar- garments with holes in them. That's garments that are sanctified or set apart for what? For Aaron, your brother, it says. Now, Aaron was establishing the priesthood. Aaron was the first priest, and it was going to be the, Le- the Levitical line of Aaron's, all of Aaron's uh, sons were in that Levitical line. And they were to have special clothing, clothing that has been set apart. And it says that this clothing is to, it says, for, for glory and for beauty. That's interesting. It's just an interesting way to, to say that because clothing can bring beauty to ordinary things. Over in verse 40, it says, Aaron's sons shall make, or for, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them and you shall make caps for them, that's hats for them, for glory and for beauty. Now, that's really interesting because we see in the New Testament, you might think, well, Christ was against all of that garb. But no, he wasn't. He established that. He was just against the pride of those men that were wearing that garb. And it was to be for glory and for beauty. It was to set them apart. And there was a, an element of a beauty that was supposed to be there. Another way it's used is that there's a sense of high rank here. It's a sense of high rank. You're putting people on a, a pedestal, we might say. This is a, it's a position of glory. And it's talking about those men of renown. We kind of elevate them or men with special attributes. We may put God in that category of special attributes and we exalt him, we glorify him, or we want to honor someone. So it's the high rank. And then there's a sense of boasting with glory. Boasting with glory. Now, it's a good kind of boasting. It's not an overwhelming, prideful kind of glory. You may say in Judges chapter 4, verse 9, you see that with warriors. You may compare it to with Samson, and the glory was in his where? His hair, right? And you have monarchs or king. You have King David, and you see him in all of his glory, or the nation of Israel in all of her glory. Now, we understand that because those are spectacular things. Those are grandiose things. But this passage uses it for just an individual. That's the way it's used here, just for an individual. And I want you to see some examples of just ordinary individuals. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11. Now, just be patient with me. Follow my little flow of thought here just for a second. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. So a man thinks through these things. He's thinking through. He has discretion, and it makes him slow to anger. He's thinking, you know what? That's okay. I can forgive this. This isn't that big of a deal. He can think through it. And it says, and it is glory to overlook a, a transgression. So you can compare those two thoughts there. It's a man's glory to, to be slow to anger and to not hold an offense. Just a normal, ordinary man can, can be uh, ordained in glory just by doing that. And we say, that's attractive to me. That guy held his tongue when he could have lashed out. There's a, a certain glory to that. Even the common man. Look at chapter 20 and verse 29. There's a couple in here. The glory of young men is their what? Strength. 
We look at those young men and we think, man, how strong. Look at those muscles. That's their strength. That's their glory right now. And, and the honor, which really you can compare the two or put the two, uh, put glory in here as well. And it's other places that there is the word glory. It says the, and the honor goes on the second part of verse 29. The honor of old men is their gray hair. That gray hair comes at a cost. There's wisdom behind that gray hair. There's a life experience that is there, and it brings honor, it brings glory to that older man. Another example, uh, we see some examples. We won't have to turn there, but in the, old, in the New Testament, we see a couple of examples. Woman's hair is her glory. Or the glory of a man is what? His wife. You see those in 1 Corinthians 11. So we know how that's being used. Okay, You get the idea. You get the idea. Now, you go back to the Proverbs 17 passage. This is a son taking glory in his dad. Just plain old ordinary dad. Just common person. Common man dad. Really probably nothing to write home about. Nothing to admire. But there's just something there. This young man, this this son looks at his dad and there's some admiration. And it's the same place that uh, grandchildren hold in the eyes of the grandparents. This father has the eye of his son. Now, this is important. This is important. This is a proverb. Solomon is reiterating this. He is, he is stating this. This is kind of a statement of fact. But it's an important element of, of a healthy family. There needs to be that admiration. There needs to be that honoring and glorying of the Father. Grandparents, they beam when they think about their grandchildren. And the, the son needs to beam when he thinks about his father. Almost as though he's put him on a pedestal. And when we were young, I mean, it, that, that, was, that was a thing. My dad can beat up your dad. My dad has a bigger truck than your dad. My dad could catch more fish than your dad. You know, there's always some competition. My dad is, is better. And there's a, there's a healthy element to that. But there's a bigger point here, isn't there? Because this love and affection and this admiration and, and harmony and joy is built into the family. That's the way family works. That's the way it should work. And the bigger picture here is there's continuity between the generations from the children all the way up to the older people in the family and it brings them together there's a joy there's a certain joy that should be in the family and that folks needs to be cultivated it needs to be cultivated it needs to be protected the son needs to be able to look up to the dad and 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 be inspired by the Father and he, his heart's desire. Man, I want to be like that guy. You, you get the picture. You get the idea. This is a good dynamic. Like I said, it needs to be cultivated and it needs to be promoted within the family. We do not live just humdrum lives, folks. We need to think through these things, think about these things, and God has put that in Scripture. Now, this is a, a jolt back to biblical reality. Because our, our uh, society has kind of lost that today. I think we've lost ground because Satan is fighting the family so hard. And he's pushing so hard. And we've lost so much ground. We've lost the standard of God's Word. And, and as a nation, we seem to be adrift. 
seem to be adrift. You say, well, how do we, how do we bring it back? How can we put that, that glory back in the eyes of the son when he looks at his father? How can we have that admiration? And how can we even, you know, today have to think about even the, the children and the grandparents? You know, it's a joy. It should be a joy instead of a chore. Let me give you three, three things just real quick. Number one, we need to teach children to respect fathers. We need to teach that. That needs to be built in to our family. It doesn't just naturally happen. And women, mothers, you have a big place in this. This is what is good. We are teaching what is good. This is what is good. And this needs to be taught. This is God's values. These are God's values. These are important. And the child says, oh, dad's not very cool. Dad's just, he's just dad. And the mother needs to come along and say, he may not be cool, but look at his faithfulness. Look at his integrity. He is a man of principles. It may not be practical to you. You may not always understand it, but he is a man of character. And he has a good work ethic. These things are important. Dad may not be cool, he may not be hip, but he is a godly man. And they need to see that, and that needs to be fostered, folks. It does. It's a healthy element to a family. Number two, we have to teach that standard then. Number two, we have to teach that standard. And to teach that standard, you you use the Word of God, obviously, but also, fathers, you have to play it out. You have to be that role. You have to play that role. You have to match that biblical standard. As Joy has already pointed out, we're flawed. We're, we're normal, ordinary, everyday people, guys. And how do we be something almost extraordinary? How do we do that? Well, we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But number three, fathers, myself included, We need to inspire the next generation. We've got to. We need to. For the health of the the family, we're going to lose ground. We have already lost ground. The the glory of manhood. That's that's almost heretical today. But it is a, a good thing. And he needs to, we as men, as godly men, we need to set that tone. And we need to do it deliberately and intentionally. We need to take this seriously. And this leads us then to one big question. It should be lurking in your mind. Is what is biblical manhood? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be to have biblical masculinity? And here's the point. Godly men must pursue and exemplify biblical masculinity to our children and to our world. That's a sobering question. That's a question that we need to think about, men. We need to think about. And I'm not just talking to the men either. Women, you have a a huge part to play in this. Now, to do this, I want to ask a series of questions. We're probably only going to get to two questions today. But I want us to think through this. And this is just part of, like I said, part of the conversation. And I want you to think about these things and even have this conversation when you get home. And the first question seems simple, but listen to this. Is there such a thing as biblical masculinity? Oh, there's four verses. You say, well, that that almost sounds like a silly question. Well, yeah, it really kind of does. But it's a question we need to ask in light of the world around us. 
Is there masculinity? Masculinity is being wiped away. It's being merged into some kind of amalgamation of femininity and masculinity and I don't know what. Now, there's four verses that I just want us to, that I want to point out to. The very first one is in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. You really don't even need to turn there. You know this verse. He made them what? Male and female. He made them masculine and he made them feminine. That's Adam and Eve. He created them distinct, different, two different, physically different, biologically different, different in many, many ways. Similar, very similar to the point that Adam says, now that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now she's somebody that I can, I can hang out with and, and love and cherish. There's two genders. Now the world is trying to suppress this truth. Romans chapter 1, they, they tend to see these truths, but because of, who knows, just because of a number of reasons, maybe because of abuse and legitimate reasons, they think that these things can be changed. And I don't even know what the number is up to now. There's How many different genders are there? A number of them. Now, let's just think about that. God makes two... They said, no, there's at least three, there's at least, you know, and then you can check off on the box of how many there are. But we as Christians, we can't buy into that. That's just a, a first little dot in, the, in pulling these things together is that there is a, bas- a masculinity. There is something that means to be a man. Now, it's not a, that men and women are in competition to one another. God made them distinct, but they are to complement one another. And that difference needs to be celebrated. It needs to be enhanced. There's no fusion today. That's not biblical at all. Those two need to be enhanced. We need femininity. We need masculinity. And those two complement one another. Let me give you another verse here. First Kings... Chapter 2, and listen to this verse, verse 2. This is David, and David is about to die, and he tells his son Solomon. He's passing the torch. He's on his deathbed. He says, I'm going the way of the earth. That's just what happens, isn't it? We cannot keep our fathers forever. We can't. I'm going the way of the earth, he says. Then he says, be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. That's masculinity, isn't it? That's a concept. That's an idea that was assumed even. And it's assumed really throughout Scripture. And he says, show yourself a man. And there's other instructions there. Now, what David is saying here is saying that Solomon, I'm not always going to be with you. I'm going to die. And it's time for you now to to step up and, and to take the responsibility And the role of a man, he says. He says, I won't be here. I won't be here. You cannot live under my umbrella anymore. I'm not there to protect you. I'm not there to provide for you and and nurture you anymore. You need to move from being a, a consumer to being a producer, we might say. You can't live under my umbrella. I'm not going to be here. You've got to step up and be a man. And he is describing masculinity there. He's describing that. This is someone who needs to 
masculine person is, is not someone that has to have somebody looking over him all of the time. He can take responsibility for his own actions. This is masculinity. Folks, we need men today. In the New Testament, let me give you a couple of verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're just going to touch on these and we'll bring it all together in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11. Paul uses the same kind of idea. Chapter 13, verse 11 says this, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. He had to grow up. And there's two distinct elements here. When I was a a child, there was just something about childhood. When you're under the Father's umbrella, you don't have to think about all of those responsibilities. And you can play. Life is easy. Life is good. But at some point, either the the absence of the father or the death of the father, whatever, at some point, Paul says, I had to be a man. Now, he's comparing this to gifted, spiritual giftedness, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the full completion of those gifts is love. And if you look at that, it's a really interesting flow of thought there. But he's comparing it and he's saying you need to be mature. He's applying this in a spiritual way. This concept of masculinity of being from uh, just a, a child to a man. He's a, applying that same element to spiritual spiritual reality. That's a process. It's a decision that you have to make. But it's also a process. There has to come that those steps there. In fact, we might compare it to an oak tree, a mighty oak. And we have several oak trees in my yard. Frankly, I just cut them all down. I don't like to deal with the leaves. Blowing the leaves in the, in the fall, it just, it's, a, it's a pain, right? Those oak leaves are, are hard to deal with. And all the oak, they just shed all the time, almost constantly. You could have an acorn there. See, that's not really an oak tree. No, it's not an oak tree yet. But if you put that acorn in the ground and you cover that with earth and you water that thing, what's going to happen? That's going to grow. And it will grow into just a sapling. Is it an oak tree yet? No, it still needs to grow. And it takes a, a few years and with some nurturing and care and watering, cultivating. It's still a little weak and it needs some help. But that thing will flourish and then all of a sudden that will be a mighty oak tree. In the same way, you can have a male child. Is that a man? Well, you know, it's a seed of a man. And the right care and the right watering, he's going to grow. He's going to, it's a process and he's going to think through. At some point, it's going to dawn on him. I've got to take responsibility for my own life and be a man. And that's what Paul is describing here. Look over at chapter 16 and verse 13. One last verse here. As we're just kind of getting a glimpse of masculinity from a biblical perspective, verse 13 says this. Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church is a bunch of baby Christians, uh, just immature Christians, and, and here's what he says. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now, folks, that's masculinity. 
And if we don't, if we don't have the right understanding of masculinity, we're going to miss the concept of this verse. He says, be strong. You Christians, you Corinthians, you need to grow up. You need to stop playing around. I'm not always going to be there. You're not always going to have me to protect you and watch out after you. You have to take some responsibilities on your own. And I can't protect you and provide for you and and nurture you all the time. You've got to learn to do that yourself. You see the difference? Today, folks, we need men who will be sober who sees Satan and the battle as real. And this is a spiritual application of masculinity, but you get the point. We have to become Christians. We can't be babies all the time. Baby Christians. We have to be strong. We have to be alert, Paul says. We have to realize that Satan is real and he's out there. Now, Scripture doesn't set out to prove, let me prove to you masculinity. It just assumes it because it's a self-evident Truth, self-evident principle, doesn't set out to do it. But one by one, just like you would build a house, you put four corners on a house, you've got four verses here that pretty substantially teaches us what masculinity is like. So it may not address it full on and as a dissertation. It's not the point. It's assuming that common men can see that there's a distinction They understand what masculinity is. But you know what? (laughs) I'm so glad for the light of Scripture shining its truth on this area. And so these four verses become like pillars for us, four corners that we begin to frame up our ideas of masculinity. And the Bible is not just leaving us out there. Oh, it's all relative. It's all just whatever you want to make it up to be. It's not like that at all. God just cuts through the darkness with a ray of light and says, this is biblical masculinity. This is what it means to be a man. Now, I haven't covered them all. This is just starting. And remember our question. Remember our question, is there such a thing as masculinity? It's clear in Scripture that there is a masculinity. Now, let's just apply this quickly. If there is masculinity, and there is, we see that in Scripture, then men, we need to be pursuing biblical masculinity. We need to understand the two extremes of just brutality of a man and the femininity of a man. And we say, well, we can reject those right away. What does the Bible say about those? We come to the the Bible in these things. And then number two, families, we need to cultivate this. We need to cultivate this. We need to protect biblical manhood. We need to bring some honor back to this. I remember throughout my life really seeing this whole thing devolve I remember when back in the 70s, men were being belittled, 70s and 80s. And then we were asked to to get in touch uh, with our feminine side, political correctness. And masculinity just kind of just takes a back seat. Now, there's, there's abuses, I know. But just because there's abuses, just because there's extremes and foolish thinking, foolish understanding, even on Christians' parts on what it means to be a man, doesn't mean that we can ignore the Bible, ignore what God says on this issue. 
And so what we need to do, we need to be good master builders and bring all that Scripture has to say on this issue and pull it together and get some clarity in our lives, in our own thinking, and in the thinking of our children. Because, folks, they're going to be confused if there's not clear teaching. Number two, let's go to the next one. And we can do this quickly. This is another question. So just in review, is there such thing as masculinity? Yes. A resounding yes. Number two, who can define masculinity? Okay, if there is a masculinity, we say there is, who gets to define it? Man? Does man, other men? And and it's based upon the strength and the brute force, a man's man. you got John Wayne. Today it's, um, you know, I I say John Wayne, and, and there's too many people that really don't even know John Wayne anymore. And it's like, oh my word, how old am I getting? You got Dwayne Johnson. I mean, try to name some. You got Chuck Norris and, and Sylvester Stallone. You got the Navy SEALs and the Rangers, and you got those guys. Is that a real man? Yeah, those are those are men. Only to a point. Only to a point, though. It's not biblical manhood. Do women get to decide what a man looks like, what a man, what masculinity is, based on rugged good looks? Bald heads. Used to be in my day, who was it? Casanova. I don't even remember Casanova, but that comes to mind. Who remembers Casanova? Does anybody remember Casanova? You remember? Oh, Casanova. Today, Tom Cruise. That was was a little while ago. Then we have Matthew McConaughey. George Clooney. Nick Jonas. All right, I'm just, just throwing these out there. I looked it up, all right? <laughs> Hugh Jackman. All right. Do women get to decide what masculinity? How about culture just based upon popularity? Is it the influential leaders? Is it the politicians? Is it the military? Is it the men in Hollywood? That's our role model? No. Foolish, isn't it? Does history Based upon accomplishment, you've got George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and General Patton. You've got Churchill. Man, some, some good men. Carver, Newton, solid men. They are the epitome? No. Who gets to decide what masculinity is? That's a basic Sunday school question, isn't it? Because the answer is so clear. God does. He is the creator. He has the right over our life. He is the supreme authority over our life. And He defines masculinity for us. And He has revealed it in His Word. Revealed it in His Word. At least enough of it. A good student can pull it together and get the understanding of masculinity clearly from this Word. And folks, we must do that. The world is just foolishly thinking about these things. And it would be foolish for Christians to allow the world to define masculinity. And I think we've done it too long. If we allow the world to define masculinity, then anything goes. Everything's relative. And you've seen the pictures. You don't even want to see the pictures of masculinity today. It's foolish. Because it's just changing. They have no anchor. They have no standard. They don't have the Word of God to tell them and, and maybe you're in that category. 
And maybe you, you need to come to the realization that, you know, I'm just as lost as can be and I have no anchor. The answer to that is only in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ, the epitome of a man is who? Jesus Christ. He lived masculinity out for us. It's all through Scripture. And we come to Him and He reveals to us, you know, Carl, you need, you're a little weak in this area. You need to grow. He nurtures us and He brings us along and we become godly men. We are so lacking, like Joey has mentioned. But we have answers. We have clarity. The world is confused on this issue, folks. Everything is relative until you begin to seek the mind of God and then relativity stops. Because the mind of God is fixed. He has already established these things. And there's no more question. There's no more confusion. He determines reality for us. One point of application. We must stop listening to the world. Folks, we listen to the world too much. It's not that we intentionally get definitions or understandings or macho men in our minds from the world. It's not that we do it intentionally. It's just the lack of information of the Word that informs us. So something's going to take that void. We need to study the Word. We need to stop letting the world force us to think unbiblically. Is there such an idea of biblical masculinity? Yes, there is. Who gets to define masculinity? Who gets to define what it means to be a man? God does. It's simple as that. Simple as that. Man has no right. Godly men, then, we must pursue and exemplify Biblical masculinity to our children and to the world, even if they laugh at us, even if they criticize us, even if they persecute us, we need to hold to truth. We need to hold to truth. So what does that mean? Just, it means fathers, mothers, all of us. We need to pray. We need to pray. And men, we need to give our sons reason. Reason. To glory in their fathers. And say, I want to be like that when I grow up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord, for your grace. Father, we would be so lost if it wasn't for the clarity of your word. If it wasn't for the absolute truth of Scripture that we come back to that anchors our souls. And even on foolish little elements like this, this isn't even talking about the depths of salvation. This is just talking about common things that we should know as self-evident truth, but the world is so confused on. Lord, make, we, make us stand out with clarity in our homes, clarity in this world, as we are light on a hill. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.